Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world's sounds. You're listening to episode 67 of Hack to Start. This episode features Purnima Vijashankar, the co-founder of Femgineer. Tyler and I wanted to invite Purnima onto the show to share her amazing story and insights as an entrepreneur and engineer. Purnima was a founding engineer of Mint.com and wanted to start her own company. After launching her first company, Purnima served as the entrepreneur in residence for 500 startups. She's currently working on her own startup, Femgineer, an education company that helps develop professional skills. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Purnima, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to have you on and, uh, you know, we've been really looking forward to this. So let's start off by getting to know a bit more about you. Where are you from? What did you study? And how did your passion for entrepreneurship and technology really develop? So I, I guess I could originally say I'm from Texas, since that's where I spent most of my youth, um, you know, elementary school through high school. So I'd say, yes, I'm from Texas. And then I went to school on the East Coast at Duke, where I majored in computer science and electrical engineering. Uh, and my, I would say, before I say my passion for entrepreneurship, I would say my passion for technology uh, came more from my upbringing. Uh, so my dad was an electrical engineer and we were immigrants. So when he was getting his master's, I was going to school with him because um, I couldn't afford childcare. And at the time, you know, I'd sit down in the lecture halls and they, um, my dad would give me his book uh, and I would look through them and, you know, read through the squiggly lines, not knowing what was going on. Um, and then a few years passed uh, and, you know, he'd come home and say things like, I'm making chips and wafers. And I always wondered why he didn't bring anything home to eat. Uh, and then one day he um, gave me the opportunity to go and visit a fab where they make silicon chips and wafers. And when I saw the robots, I was just enamored by it. And while I got drawn into technology, I never thought about pursuing it as a career until I got to college. Um, so I'd done like a lot of little projects on my own, you know, coding here and there, but uh, I, it's not something I'd wanted to do as a career. Uh, that happened much later. That happened when I got to college. And then similarly with entrepreneurship, I had never really had an inkling towards entrepreneurship. Uh, I actually joke about how when I was growing up, I tried to start the equivalent of a lemonade stand, um, which was selling popcorn balls in my neighborhood with one of my friends. And after a couple days, we basically sold zero. Uh, so I was completely disheartened and I thought, this is not you know, a career path for me. <laughs> um, granted, I was like six at the time. So what do you know? You don't have determination. Uh, you don't really know uh, how to build a product and stuff like that. Um, so I really hadn't thought about it as a career path and I mostly fell into it. And that happened around 2005, 2006 when my friend from college, Aaron Patzer, was starting Mint.com. 
um, was telling me about the idea. And at the time, he was based in Texas. I was in California. And I just suggested that he move to California if he wanted to pursue this as a company, you know, recruit and all of that. Um, so he ended up moving here and starting to build. And as he was doing it uh, in the beginning, we certainly talked about it a lot. And then uh, over time, you know, I came up with the name for the company um, and started to build the prototype and quickly became, you know, the founding engineer. And after building the prototype, scaling it and the acquisition, um, decided that I wanted to transition from being an engineer to or, you know, founding engineer to a founder. And it was mostly because I wanted to see if I could build my own products, build my own company. It seemed like the next challenge for me. That's awesome, and and, and that, that that's really cool. So, how did you how did how did that transition from you know engineering, especially the first version of uh, of Mint or or a, f- a few of the versions of Mint, and, and transitioning into being a full time founder? What was that like? Painful. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's just people. I don't know why, like engineers. And mind you, I am one, but we just think we're so damn brilliant and that we can solve anything. Uh, so we immediately think, well, you know, how hard could entrepreneurship be? Um, but the problem is that it's not about um, finding a right answer or even like a right approach. A lot of it is taking the time to learn, taking the time to like study a market, uh, do a lot of experimentation. Uh, and for an engineer who comes with a mindset of getting things done, shipping product, perfecting it, that can be really stifling. And so I spent probably the first year unlearning a lot of what it takes to be an engineer and what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And I, in the second and third year, actually put myself through like sales training and a lot more coaching because I needed to be okay with some level of uncertainty, uh, some level of asking for people to pay for stuff and pay for products. And those are things that, you know, again, engineers aren't necessarily comfortable with. Uh, so so it was it was challenge. It wasn't like an overnight thing where one day I was wearing the engineer hat and the next day I took it off and put on the entrepreneur hat. That's cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there were any resources that helped. Uh, was it mostly just classes? Uh, I would say a lot of trial and error. But after a year of trial and error, you, uh, again, this is probably the engineering side where you hate brute forcing everything. (laughs) Um, So you think, okay, I should go and get some training, some education. Um, But a a fair amount of it definitely were some battle scars and wounds uh, that uh, just came with time and experience. But I quickly learned that there were some methods, you know, I had I had to become better at quantifying things as it relates to marketing. Um, I had to get better about reading people and communicating with them when it came to sales Uh, and even like coaching my own team, you know, I had to learn more about management. Um, So there were like all these disciplines that I had to to learn and some of it was was a little bit of trial and error and a lot of it was um, getting getting a fair amount of mentorship and training under my belt. That's cool. That's awesome. So as you started to transition sort of deeper into the entrepreneurship, uh, you know, side of the equation as a founder, um, you ended up launching your own startup called BusyBee. So what is BusyBee and, and why did you decide to launch it? Yeah. So when I left Mint, my primary goal, I think, in life (laughs) was, I just want to know if I can build something on my own. You know, I have spent X number of 
years building products for somebody, but in a team setting. But I want to know if I can go from being uh, an engineer to a founder and building a product on my own, putting a team together uh, and addressing a market. So that was really what I was trying to, I would say, like set as a set as goals for myself in that first year. And I looked at BusyBee as a market uh, around small business, specifically around fitness businesses that needed help and thought, okay, I think there's a need here in the market. I'm going to spend the next year building a product getting it out there, getting, you know, getting them to pay on a subscription basis. Um, so that's basically what BusyBee is today. When I brought on my a co-founder, um, we had talked about always building this as a product that would be self-service. You know, we didn't want to have a lot of overhead. We wanted to have a small team. We wanted to start making money quickly. And that and we wanted to use it more as a means to like, you know, satisfy the lifestyles that we wanted to lead. Um, we did go out and raise some capital, but we quickly decided that we didn't want to raise, you know, too much or we didn't want to uh, raise to the point where we didn't feel comfortable. Um, so at the end of 2012, we actually ran into a very difficult situation um, where we had built our second product for Busy Bee, and we had gotten really good traction with it. Uh, we were at a point where we were basically about to break even, and about a couple months after the launch, um, we had gotten some weird inquiries of people complaining that we were charging their credit cards. Uh, and mind you, that second product was a billing product, um, and so that billing product was meant to uh, let studio owners take payments and then receive next day payout. So I was trying to make it really easy for small business owners to get to cash flow positive. And what uh, what ended up happening, unfortunately, was we discovered that there were unfortunately some trolls on the internet, and uh, they had stolen a bunch of credit card numbers, had put them through our billing product, and uh, were basically cashing out. So we had this huge amount of um, basically debt that we owed people, you know, we like chargebacks, and we had to figure out a way to resolve that very quickly. Well, mind you, we were also running out of capital because we had bootstrapped, uh, taken a little bit of investment, but we'd gone back to bootstrapping. And we were really relying on the source of funds to um, get us to a point where we could break even. So when faced with that challenge, you know, our immediate instinct was like, okay, let's shut down the let's shut down the second product, um, and let's figure out what to do next. So we certainly couldn't raise capital. We were certainly um, kind of struggling to make ends meet. So my entire team uh, became part time, and then slowly. You know, we were trying to figure out a way to make back the money that we owed people. Uh, and at the time, uh, you know, I was getting a lot of interest from folks to speak and teach and do all this stuff. Uh, and I thought, well, why don't I just start doing that as a way to uh, monetize, you know, l make some money on the side. And that's where um, basically <laughs> taking my seven-year-old, or at the time, I guess, uh, five-year-old blog, dusting it off, and realizing I had built an audience there um, became a great source of revenue. So I started building my own classes. Started, I started getting students into them. Um, and then after I'd done the first iteration of the, the first class that I put out, I realized I really enjoyed it and that there was pretty solid business here. 
So uh, my co-founder and I agreed that we were going to put BusyBee on the back burner. You know, it was just going to be a standalone product. We had customers. We would service them as they would like. But I was going to turn most of my attention towards building Femgineer um, because there was a real need here in the market. um, And certainly there was a lot of interest uh, that was going unfulfilled. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, and we'll get to what you're building with, with Femgineer just a little bit later on. Um, but, but I want to know, so with, with BusyBee, how did you guys actually approach uh, building the product and getting the first few customers before the, the trolls kind of jumped in on the second product? You make a lot of mistakes and you also do some things that are right. Um, so one of the things that we did that we are actually proud of is um, we did a lot of customer research early on. You know, when we were thinking about building BusyBee, we didn't jump into building. Instead, um, I personally took about three months, even a little bit longer than that, to really dive into who was going to be the customer, um, what was the need, and just had some interviews with them to really do a deep dive because I had never managed a fitness business. I'd I'd volunteered, I had, you know, been to a number of them, and I was certainly a consumer, um, but I had never actually owned one. So it was really important for myself and my team to develop a level of empathy. Uh, I even sent a number of them out to go and observe, you know, sit in uh, at a studio and just walk, watch people come and go. Um, so that was really, I think, valuable. And then from there, we started to very slowly build paper prototypes, sit down with owners, have them walk through it, get approval, and then started to build you know, our, our prototype. And even as we were building it, we had a clear launch date in mind. And as that crept up on us, we were uh, pretty strict about getting all of the people who we had interviewed um, to convert to early adopters and to start paying us from day one with the assumption that this was going to be a subscription model and they were going to continue to pay us. Um, so on launch day, we were successful at launching to an audience, or, or rather a, a set of customers that we had primed earlier, you know, six to nine months before, and they were comfortable paying us for the product. So you were previously the entrepreneur in residence at 500 Startups. What is 500 Startups and how did you end up joining the team there? It's kind of a funny story. So 500 Startups uh, overall is, I would say, um, a, ven- a venture fund. Um, you know, they do pretty early stage investments. They have an accelerator. They do some events. But all of that is meant to feed into their investment arm. Um, so that's the focus of 500. And the founder, the managing partner, is Dave McClure. And I know Dave because he was actually an early investor in Mint. Um, so I, when I'd started to work on Femgineer more, I'd actually ended up moving to the East Coast for about six months because I got invited to teach at Duke, um, my alma mater. And after that first semester, moved back to the area. And at the time, uh, you know, reached out to Dave. We just had coffee. And I was telling him what I was working on at Femgineer. And he was like, oh, this is great. Um, Why don't you come in and teach some of our founders these topics. Uh, So I thought, okay, sounds good. Uh, I have like a few, a couple days that I can spare and uh, would be happy to participate. And so that's how I got uh, recruited to the accelerator program. Uh, And while I was there, I was an entrepreneur in residence. I had about seven companies each quarter that I advised. And then um, there are 30 
companies in the batch. So aside from the companies I was advising, I was also mentoring and meeting with these other companies um, or, you know, know, hosting talks, uh, reaching out to angels, uh, making sure that they were getting investment and basically walking them through the entire process. A lot of them had product, but they needed it to be refined. Um, A lot of them needed help when it came to pitching investors. Uh, And then, you know, just a lot of them needed a a shoulder to cry on when uh, (laughs) when things aren't going well, either with their co-founder, with their team, with the product, or with fundraising. So that was another aspect of being an EIR. So you've seen a ton of pitches and candidates applying to be a part of 500 startups. So what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs who are looking to apply to get into 500 or just any accelerator to begin with? I would say uh, a couple things. The first thing I would say is this market is really uh, changing quickly. By that, I mean the criteria to get into uh, an incubator or accelerator or whatever you call it um, is changing. What was acceptable maybe a year ago or two years ago um, is not acceptable today, depending on the accelerator. So it's important to like take the time to talk to them and get an understanding of what they're looking for. Um, and if they're at all being wishy-washy, you know, asking them for some examples of companies that have graduated in the last quarter. I wouldn't go back more than six months um, because, again, things, things change. Um, so I think that's important because a lot of them are now asking for a prototype. Um, a lot of them are asking for revenue. Uh, some are okay without either. Uh, so it really it really depends. Mm-hmm. And then um, there are also some that are becoming very vertical focused. You know, there's Highway One, which is a hardware accelerator. Uh, there are some that are fintech accelerators. They they only want to work with SaaS companies that are in the fintech vertical. Um, so that's, I think, another key thing to watch out for is that you're going after the ones who have expertise and they can help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing I would say, and this is where I think too many founders have a false set of expectations, um, but they sort of go in assuming that the accelerator is there to run your business. And it is not. Um, you know, they're there to act as a mentor and guide you. But at the end of the day, it's up to you as the founder to take the feedback, figure out what you want to like listen to and, um, you know, which direction you want to go in and set the vision and all of that. Um, but it's also your responsibility to like build your business. Uh, and I think a lot of people come in with the assumption that they'll just go and, and miracles will happen. Um, and unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, mm-hmm. They've built great networks, which founders should leverage for networking, for recruiting, for fundraising. But if they don't take the time to leverage those and put in the work, then it's not going to be the best use of their time. So I actually tell some founders, if you're not, if you're not at a point where... Um, you feel comfortable with the level you're at in terms of having a product out there, having some early customers, uh, and you feel like you know investors would be open to hearing your pitch and, and putting in capital, then it's probably not the right time to go to a place like a 500. Um, you probably want to explore maybe some incubators or other places that are more comfortable with you being earlier stage, you know, maybe just an idea or just a team, or maybe you've got a rudimentary prototype built. 
But at the end of the day, you still have to build that business. Um, and then the third thing I would say is, on the flip side, a lot of well, so while some people believe, oh, you know, accelerators are going to work miracles, some people find them to be completely useless. You know, they're like, oh, I can just go out and raise a seed round, or you know, I'm ready for my Series A, and quite frankly, they don't have the network or the traction to make that happen and they don't realize it. So they end up sort of taking a long time, going six months to a year um, to, to close their funding um, when they could have done it actually a little bit more easily had they gone to an accelerator that would have given them a little more credibility, made some more intros, you know, they would have built their network. Um, so I would say it, it's unfair to, to discount that value. And the other thing is they also think like, in terms of, oh, I need to raise my seed, not, okay, if I'm really going to consider building this company through fundraising, I'm going to need to raise multiple rounds of funding. And that means I'm going to need to constantly build my network. So I want to go to a place where they are going to introduce me to people and there's going to be a lot of mentors, going to be investors, so I can start building those relationships early on. And then if not in this upcoming round, then a later round, you know, if not in the seed, then in the series A, et cetera. Um, so I think those are three things to consider before you, you know, either jump on board to, to participate in an accelerator. So you've helped startups prepare to raise capital, but generally, what's your recommended approach and what insights can you share with others? I think there are a few things to think about because it's not just one thing, right? People often think like, oh, if I just had this one thing, then someone's going to write me a check. So I would say there's actually a number of factors. Um, the first and most important is your own personal credibility. Uh, and by that, it's it's a little bit nuanced. So if you're a business founder, then investors want to see that you have somebody technical who can build the product or you have a technical team in place even if your co-founder isn't technical. So that's one form of credibility. Um, if you've had a successful exit or you've worked at a company that has a successful exit, that's another sign of credibility. Um, if you have strong companies that you've worked at or positions um, that you've worked at, that's another source of credibility. But people often discount presenting that, like presenting their background. Um, and even if it's a insight, like if you've been in a particular market and just know a lot about it, uh, that's a source of credibility. You know, I had a founder who had spent 10 years um, at, in mortgage-backed securities, and his company is about mortgage-backed securities, right? So who better uh, than to see all the ups and downs and experience them firsthand and have that credibility? So that's really important. That domain expertise is another sign of credibility. Um, so I think that's the first thing that people are, are looking for, um, and good luck getting a meeting if you don't have those things. The second, um, which is becoming more and more of an issue, is having something that's built. I see time and time again, people are trying to raise capital from angels or micro VCs and you know, they have a pitch deck. Uh, so unless you have successfully sold a company for at least, you know, several million dollars, it's going to be hard to convince somebody that you can get by on an idea alone. Um, so they want to see that you can build something, a prototype, get it into the hands of some customers, start making just, you know, a little bit of money. Um, but that's becoming overly, I think, important to investors. Um, and those folks who just have an idea and are concerned about raising would be better off 
going and talking to friends and family and raising capital or figuring out a way to bootstrap through services or through a paycheck. Um, the third thing uh, I would say is finding the right investor. I know this sounds really silly. It's like, why um, why can't I just get anybody to invest? Uh, but the, the good news is there are more and more investors today than there were you know, a few years back, but they're all becoming very specialized because they want to invest in areas that they have, again, expertise in, just like they want to invest in people who have specific expertise. So I, I see, again, a lot of founders who reach out to investors who either aren't familiar with their industry and can't get them to come up to speed quickly or don't have like a tangential uh, company in their portfolio um, or it's the wrong stage. You know, your seed company talking to somebody who only writes big series A and B checks. Um, so it's really important to find that investor match um, and that takes time. And I think a lot of founders sometimes don't have that time or aren't willing to put that time into sort of hunt and peck and find the right people. Um, so I'd say that's that's incredibly important. And they also have oftentimes some metrics. You know, they have like investors have certain things that they want to see, certain baseline. And if you're not hitting that baseline, then good luck uh, getting investment. And that again is all becoming more and more of a challenge for folks, uh, especially as they go past the seed into the Series A. Um, more investors are looking for them to have a solid set of metrics and not just like paint a beautiful vision. Um, and then I think the the final final piece is fundraising is a process. You know, it's very much like sales. And for anybody who has done sales, they know that you know time kills any deal. And so if you are fundraising, it is important to have a deadline of look after this point, we're not doing any more fundraising because you will end up spending all of your time fundraising, none of your time building your business, uh, and then it won't matter, you know, like whether you had capital or not. So it's important that you figure out, okay, you know, I want to raise uh, X amount of money by this date, and I've got to hold investors accountable to that date. Um, now, investors will think that you're calling their bluff, et cetera, uh, or will call your bluff, um, but it's better to just say like, no, this is the real deadline and and move past that. And if they don't invest, then they probably never were going to invest. So you giving them two more weeks or one more month is actually doing yourself a disservice because uh, they weren't going to invest. And these people can make decisions pretty quickly. Uh, certainly like series A and B need to take time to do due diligence and all of that. But a seed investor can usually make a decision within uh, a one to two week time frame because uh, there's a lot of supply in the market and they know that um, so they can make a decision. So I think founders have to get comfortable with giving people deadlines and running it like a process. And the other part of that is um, getting very good at figuring out what people are saying, like taking the feedback and processing it. So it's not saying the same pitch over and over again. It's pitching, hearing what people are saying and reading their body language, also understanding what they're not saying, uh, and then deciding, you know, did that pitch go well or not? And do I have to refine it for the next pitch? Um, so I think that's also something that people often struggle with uh, and they just sort of blow through a lot of contacts with the same pitch rather than uh, iterating on it. So you're three experience at 500. You've advised several companies on the topics like engineering, product development, user acquisition and recruiting technical talent. What are some of the most common mistakes you'd see in some of these areas? 
you know, I think it's actually totally fine um, to make mistakes in all of these areas. I've made them. Uh, successful founders in the past have made them too. So I, I think, you know, everybody kind of makes their mistakes in all of these. Where I see most companies go under or things just don't work out is when there is a founder who's either extremely uncoachable, like, you know, it's their way or the highway, in which case, no matter what you say, it doesn't help. And they're, they can only learn by making these mistakes. Um, but a lot of times it's to the detriment of the company. Um, so so it's it's the coachability factor of, of a founder. And um, the ones who are more coachable can bounce back from those mistakes faster. The ones who aren't, um, you know, and that's where six to 12 months, you see them going under. Uh, and the same, and the same thing is true for like a co-founding team, right? You'll see this a lot where it's not a very good match. There's no alignment in the vision, um, or there's not good, like complementary skill set, and it manifests itself in like endless conflict. Um, and ultimately like, you know, leads to the demise of the company. We've mentioned, or you've mentioned it a few times so far, um, you're currently the founder of, of Femgineer. So, um, it, and I know you talked about a little bit above as, as it being a blog and, and sort of having to do with, with teaching and classes, but really what is Femgineer and, and what motivated you to start it? So Femgineer is an education company and our goal is really to uh, help people bring products to life, whether they're, you know, primarily software products. Um, and as part of that mission, you know, we want to make the tech community more flexible and inclusive. Uh, so what we do is we have a few products. We have online courses that we teach around product development and public speaking. Um, we tend to focus more on the soft skills because that's an area in the market today that's very neglected. You know, there's a ton of coding academies out there um, and there's like, a, you know, a ton of, of these sorts of schools that teach you the technical skills, um, but the, the soft skills for building a software product or building a software company don't exist or, you know, it's it's hard to find them uh, and find ones that are going to be outcome-based. Uh, so that's that's one area. And then aside from that, um, we have a monthly web show uh, called Femgineer TV. And the goal of that is really to showcase founders and in, in technical folks um, who wouldn't otherwise be in the spotlight. Uh, so a lot of them tend to be like women and minorities, um, but a lot of them are also folks who are very heads down uh, and 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 building things uh, and wouldn't normally be in the spotlight uh, or are just doing uh, interesting thought leadership. And then um, the final piece is, you know, I personally do a lot of speaking at big companies and startups and at conferences. Um, and a lot of that is, again, to just uh, champion the cause around Femgineer, um, you know, of, of, of being ed about education. Um, you know, our three words are educate, encourage, empower. Um, and we do that for everybody. So we're not just focused on women. In fact, 50% of our, a little over 50% of our audience um, is male. Um, but we really believe that if we teach people and have our teaching be outcome-based, um, then they're going to be able to make an impact. That's awesome. So what distribution channels uh, or, or sort of growth channels have been have you been using to help grow the Femgineer brand and reach? 
Yeah, so the show is definitely one of one of our channels. So, um, so YouTube, and we're slowly developing that. We are about eleven episodes uh, in, um, or we filmed eleven episodes. And I think about eight of them have been released. Um, so we're slowly starting to cultivate that. Um, and we've also got the blog, uh, which is at this point now seven years old. So we get a lot of people through that. And I also, like I said, I speak a lot. Um, so I would say it's co- very content driven. Um, that's how we get most most folks in the door. Um, it's also a great way for them to get accustomed to the brand and to the message around it um, because they're getting different types of content um, in different form, different form factors, um, but it's also stuff that's useful for them. And as they use it and find value, then they're more likely to uh, upgrade to a book or a course. Um, so everything that we do has a very clear funnel. You know, our goal is get people into email newsletter, send them a uh, video of one of our recent shows, or send them a newsletter, and then. Um, you know, try to get them to purchase one of our books. And then from the books, those lead into the courses. Uh, so that's kind of how we're structured. Awesome. No, that's great. And so what's next for, for you and Femgineer uh, over the coming months? So I've got a pretty um, busy speaking schedule. I will be headed out to the East Coast uh, at the end of next week. So I'm speaking at Grace Hopper. And then I've got another conference uh, on the East Coast, women, etc. And then after that, it's back to uh, SF for a little bit. And then I'm headed to Europe to speak at a couple conferences there. Um, there's a design conference called Frontiers of Interaction. And then there's a conference in Finland um, that's more general business focused. Uh, and then back to the U.S. to speak at the Lean Startup Conference. So that's that's sort of my agenda. And then um, our second book called Present uh, it's on public speaking, is going to launch in early November. So that's what's on the agenda for the next quarter. That's awesome. Sounds like a lot yeah. of great traveling. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm jealous. I want to be able to go out uh, to Europe. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of fun. So what are some of the apps that you've downloaded most recently? You know, I was in Europe and I started using WhatsApp. I know I was supposed to be using it like months ago when it was really popular. Um, But quite frankly, when I was in the US, it seemed like everybody was just, at least my friend circle uh, and my network was using uh, Facebook Messenger. Mm -hmm. But when I was international, um, people were using WhatsApp. And I realized the reason they were using WhatsApp is the um, data footprint is much smaller than Facebook Messenger. So that was one that I was using all the time to keep up with like, you know, new friends, etc. Um, another uh, one that I was using was TripAdvisor. Uh, and that was to like look up restaurants and activities and all that stuff. So uh, because a lot of my life w- was revolving and is going to continue for the next couple of months to revolve around travel, um, those were those were two apps that I used. Um, and then I really, as silly as it sounds, um, I love the Kindle app uh, on my phone and on my iPad. Uh, it has interesting things like I can load up five to ten books and read as I'm on the plane or on the train or whatever. Um, but it has these interesting quirks or I say features to it like tells me how long a tra- it's going to take to read a chapter. Uh, so then I can be like, oh, I want to commit to reading that chapter or no, like I don't have that time. So I'm not going to do it. And then I can, you know, highlight um, and do all that good stuff as well. 
That's awesome. Um, I had definitely had a similar experience with the WhatsApp uh, when I was traveling. It's 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 crazy when you leave North America. What apps are popular than what you're used to? You know. Yeah, and I I think I think some people were using Instagram. I I certainly use Instagram quite a bit, but I mostly use it to see. Uh, I'm, I'm more of a voyeurist, so I, I use it to see what other people are doing, like how they're living lives. I'm not so much into posting um, myself. Uh, but I like to see like what other people are doing and, and draw inspiration from from that. So, um, yeah, I enjoy using Instagram as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely the same way. So are there any recommendations of great content that you've read lately, like a book, videos or blog posts? Yes. Uh, so a book that I'm reading right now, which is pretty powerful. And I think everybody, just everybody should read this no matter you know, where they're at is called Thanks for the Feedback. Um, And I started reading it because one of my peer reviewers for my upcoming book suggested it. Um, And it's just, it's great because it walks you through uh, as a receiver, you know, how you should process feedback, not necessarily as a giver. Uh, So I definitely recommend that book. Let's see, what else have I have I read recently? I've also read um, this book called Headstrong. It's about 52 women throughout the last, I would say, 200 to 300 years that made some pretty significant scientific discoveries and got little to no recognition. Um, You know, basically the recognition went to other folks, you know, who got the Nobel Prizes and stuff like that. Um, so they basically, you know, died in obscurity, but made these really significant contributions that we almost take for granted today. Um, so a headstrong, highly recommend it. Sounds like some good recommendations. We'll definitely have to check those out. Um, so yeah. do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by and you'd like to leave with us today? Sure. I think the first is, you know, whether you are listening to this podcast as a founder or as someone who's technical or exploring startups, I think it's really important to take each day and each experience as a learning experience. And, you know, sometimes that means you have good learning experiences. Sometimes it means you have bad learning experiences. Um, But I think getting too fixated on achieving an outcome in a certain period of time um, can often cause you to have more problems rather than, okay, what did I learn? How can I apply that learning to the next day or the next instance this happens? Um, and I found that living uh, at you know a founder's life or living in a startup um, through the lens of learning uh, actually gets you to your deadline faster rather than obsessing over that deadline. So I think that's, that's the first thing. Um, and then I think the second is uh, to not go at it alone. Um, a lot of times people feel like they have to bear a brunt of the responsibility, whether they're the CEO or the CTO or a marketer or a designer, um, but really this is a team effort and it's not one thing that's going to cause your company to like succeed and skyrocket or end up a catastrophic failure. It's usually a culmination. Um, so, so everybody deserves a little bit of the blame. Um, but when you think about it that way, um, it's more about how can each person contribute? How can they each help? And how do we foster an environment where people are open to speaking up and sharing either the successes or the failures and, and everybody helps them get through that? Absolutely. I think that's a great way to end it. Thanks so much, Purnima, for your time and and for speaking with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, guys.
Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Hack to Start, and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.